Thank you, Sylvia. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 20. The book of Numbers chapter 20. I know we're in a Proverbs series. We will get there very soon. Don't worry. But I thought it would be helpful for us to read a passage from the book of Numbers. Tonight we'll be looking at the theme of anger in the book of Proverbs and outside of it. And there's a passage in Numbers 20 that illustrates for us perfectly how a little bit, how what appears to be a small lapse in judgment, a little bit of impatient anger can have devastating consequences. Anger is one of those sins, it's a particular sin that can infuriate us in the Christian life, no pun intended, right? Our own anger can be very hard to read. It can be righteous. It can be unrighteous. It's usually a mix of both. It can be deceptively hard to kill. We think we have a hold on anger. We think we've put that thing to death, and then out of the blue, something happens, and we lash out in anger, and then we feel ashamed at how quickly and how violently we were upset. Something so small can trigger us in such a big way. And anger is often so forcefully expressed, right? Our anger can be very hard to keep under wraps. All it takes is for one person to cut me off in traffic when I've been waiting patiently and they can just zip up to the front and jump in line and my facade of Christian maturity goes out the window, much to my shame. The Bible speaks much about anger, and we're going to start by reading Numbers chapter 20, verses 2 through 13. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, would that we had died with our brothers, perished before the Lord. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord out into this wilderness that we should die out here, both we and our cattle? Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord said to Moses, saying, Take the staff... And assemble the congregation, you and your brother, and tell the rock. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. And you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give to the congregation and to their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as God commanded him. And then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. And he said to them, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water out from this rock for you? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I had given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord. 
and through them he showed himself to be holy. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect and holy word. Let's pray. Father, we are approaching a text, a theme, a topic of anger that that we need your Holy Spirit's help with. We tend to be an angry people. And that anger expresses itself in a whole host of different sinful actions. But God, we need you to cut the root of this very anger in our hearts. Help us at the level of our hearts, at the level of our desires to be a people that is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love just like you are, God. Help us to rightly discern our own hearts and our motives. Indeed, give us wisdom to be patient, to be loving, to be self-controlled, to be, in a word, wise. In Christ's name I pray, amen. With this story of Moses in the back of our minds, we will go back to the book of Proverbs where we've been studying. We've been working our way through Proverbs, the wisdom book of all wisdom books, the most practical of all of God's books in the Bible, and we'll begin to look and see how Proverbs describes an angry person. How does Proverbs paint the picture of a person that is angry? And we'll see first, Proverbs describes an angry man as a fool. An angry man is a fool. Proverbs 14, 17 says that a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. A man with a short fuse is a fool. It's not merely that he's passionate. It's not merely that he's got Irish heritage. It's not merely because of his background or a peculiar family trait. He is a fool. A man that cannot control his temper is a fool. Proverbs 14, 29. He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly. Whatever else he may be, a doctor of theology, an encyclopedia of biblical knowledge, he may be a beloved pastor or a deacon or a diligent worker, he may be a sweet old lady or an encouraging person, but if that person is angry, is out of control in their anger, they are at root a fool, and they're a fool for multiple reasons, right? They're foolish because their passions and their emotions within them control them. They're led astray by their desires rather than being governed by the Holy Spirit. Their self-governance is dictated by the circumstances around them. They are reactive to what's around them rather than being self-controlled, which causes all sorts of problems in this world, which leads to Proverbs' second observation. Not only is an angry man a fool, but the Bible makes clear to us that an angry man will have strife. An angry man will have strife. He will have trouble. He will have discord. He will have conflict. He'll never have peace. He'll have relational friction with all the people around him. Everyone seems to be on edge, and the potential for an explosion is everywhere. Proverbs 15, 18 says that a hot-tempered man stirs up strife. 
but the slow to anger pacifies contention. Eugene Peterson paraphrases it this way. He says, hot tempers starts fights, but a calm, cool spirit keeps the peace. And we've all experienced this before. Somebody says something, maybe not intending it to be really mean, but then that other person wants to say something back and it escalates one step, one step until things explode. It happens on the playground right out there. It happens in politics. It happens on the ball field. It happens in marriages. It happens in churches. Rather than choosing to use a soft answer to turn away wrath, we choose to speak out of our fleshly impulses, and we throw gasoline on the fire, which blows them up and blows us up. The result is strife, strife with our friends, with our family members, and within God's household. And we would do well to notice that it is the angry man that stirs up strife. Right? He is the one that is guilty for inciting the fuss. Angry people like to blame everyone else out there for their problems. They like to blame the circumstances around them. If those kids of mine would just behave, if the boss would just get off my back, if my spouse would just quit doing that and pick up after themselves, my life would be so much better and I wouldn't be so angry all the time. If the circumstances were just a little bit different, if the sickness would just go away, then I wouldn't be so angry. It's, really, it's out there. That's the problem. That's what the angry person thinks. But that's not how it works. The angry person is the one that stirs up strife in his life. It's not the circumstances. That's what James talks about in chapter 4. He says, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Right? We could... Say, why is there strife among you? He tells us that we have strife and quarrels because of our sinful passions at war within us. It's an internal root. It's not circumstances. Those just expose the problem that's already there, latent in our hearts. We crave something, and we don't have it, and we get angry about it, and we lash out to other people. But it's not the circumstances that are the root of the problem. It's our desires. We crave peace and quiet and we don't get it, so we explode. We crave comfort and we don't get it and we complain. We crave attention from someone and we don't get that, so we sulk and we withdraw. We crave and we crave and we crave and we don't get and we pitch a fit like a toddler that didn't get their cookie. The angry man stirs up strife. And this strife stirring usually compounds itself. Proverbs 29:22 tells us that an angry man stirs up strife and a hot-tempered man abounds in transgression. He's overflowing with offenses. He is spilling over with his sins. It's it's not like an angry man has no other vices. He's an otherwise holy man but has this one character flaw of anger. Anger reveals all sorts of other vices. An angry man is usually impatient, for example. People test his patience and he's on edge all the time. He erupts at the first sign of someone merging in traffic without using a blinker. Sinner! They want justice. 
He loses his mind when an inanimate object like an elevator takes too long. As if yelling at the elevator would make it accelerate. He gets upset when the doctor makes him wait or when people don't respond to his messages fast enough. Angry people have problems with patience. Think about what we just read with Moses in Numbers 20. He's leading God's people in the desert. They need water. They're complaining, right? Boy, I sure wish we were in chains and in bondage in Egypt, Moses. You brought us out here to die, and we're going to complain about this liberation that you brought us through. And his anger, he doesn't speak to the rock as God says. He says, you rebels, you can almost hear him gritting his teeth when he says it. And he slaps the rock twice. And he was unable to enter the land, the land that he so desperately wanted to see. And our anger likewise can lead us to be impatient. People don't listen to what I'm telling. If they would just listen and follow my instructions, life would be so much easier and I wouldn't be so upset. They're not doing what I told them, and we lose our cool, we get angry. Does this sound familiar to any of us? It sure does to me. Maybe it's not impatience. Maybe the angry man has control problems. He likes to be in control. He likes to be the boss. He likes to have things done his way, on his timetable, by his methods, and if they're not done that way, he blows up. Kids aren't putting the socks in the sock drawer the right way. Yell at them. Someone's not doing it the way that he would, and he gets annoyed and dismissive. Or maybe someone tries to help out, and he feels threatened, and so he lashes out. He likes to be the king of his little kingdom, and when that idolatry is not brought to fruition, he gets angry. Or maybe instead of impatience or control problems, he turns his anger and he medicates it in another way. He gets angry at God for the pain that he's having to endure, so he starts drinking a little more than he should have. Partly to alleviate the pain, but partly because he's angry at God. Or maybe... The fool escapes into pornography. The wife frustrates him and won't give him what he deserves, and so he's going to get it from somewhere else, driven more out of anger and spite than out of anything else. How dare she not give me what I want, what I deserve? An angry man abounds in transgression, Proverbs says, which can look like a whole host of other sins. Third, not only is an angry man a fool and a fool destined to have strife, But an angry man is in danger. Proverbs tells us that an angry man is in danger. The author paints a picture for us of a man in peril. It says in Proverbs 25, 28, like a city that's broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. He has no walls around him. He has no barrier of protection. He's exposed. He's defenseless. He's at the mercy of whatever is happening around him, whatever the circumstances are. He's not the one in control. He's controlled by things outside of him. Further, he's in danger of punishment. Chapter 19, verse 19. A man of great anger will bear the penalty. And if you rescue him, you'll only have to do it again. 
An angry man will bear the punishment for his anger. He will reap the fruit of the seeds of anger that he is sowing. And when that time comes, he'll be even more angry. He'll reap the fruit of broken relationships. His anger will drive his wife away from him. His children won't want to spend time with him. His friends don't want to hang out with him or see him anymore. Nobody invites them over like he used to. His employees will look for jobs elsewhere. And he's just bearing part of the penalty for his anger. But the real danger that this angry fool has is his relationship to God. Jesus teaches us in Matthew 5 that if we're angry with someone, we are liable to judgment. Our sinful anger in our hearts, even if not expressed in blind rage, is more than enough to merit for us the righteous anger of God against us. We're all guilty of that. We've yelled at our children, we've mumbled about something under our breath, we've grumbled and complained, we've cursed someone in traffic, we've had bitter thoughts about a rival, we've had any number of murderous intentions and thoughts in our hearts. We've broken God's law. And in most, if not all of these situations, we've blamed the problem, we've blamed the strife and the anger on something else outside of us. It's the circumstances, right? It's the, it's the staff. If they would just do what I told them. It's the traffic. It's everything and everyone else's fault that I'm mad. It's not my fault. It's certainly not because I am at root an angry, sinful person. And these are the actions that condemned each and every one of us. Outside of Christ's forgiveness, we all stood condemned. We all stood under the relenting, white-hot, righteous anger of God. A God who in his holy anger can't not judge and punish sin. He will and he must. And that's the status of all of mankind naturally. We're born with this judgment upon us and we stoke the fires of God's anger towards us every time we have a sinfully angry word. Every time we have a bitter thought or a murderous intention in our heart. But praise be to God that the Bible does not stop there. Jesus Christ is able to help us in our anger. The gospel begins with a God before all time who knew that his people would rebel against him, chose to take those beings made in his image and reconcile them to himself. He chose for his son a bride, a church, a chosen group, a group to bestow upon them his eternal favor rather than the just deserved wrath and anger that they had earned. God determined not to be eternally angry at them but was peaceable. He decided to reconcile the strife at great personal cost to himself. And then at the fullness of time, God sent forth his very own son. This son was slandered, was imposed upon, was handled hatefully, insulted. He was treated as a criminal. He was betrayed and denied and scourged and mocked. In short, he had reason to be angry. But how did he respond? He didn't lash out in unrighteous anger. He didn't call people Names. He wasn't like Moses, though he could have been, you rebels. 
He didn't stew in bitterness. He didn't mumble under his breath about the coming judgment. He wasn't foolish like the man in Proverbs that lacked self-control and thereby stirred up strife. Rather, he was the wise man that was slow to anger and thereby pacified contention. And this was true of him and his relationships on earth, but he was even true of his relationship with his heavenly father because Christ was the faithful one that never showed unrighteous anger. Because he was the dutiful son that never murdered in his heart, he earned the peaceful gift of eternal life for his bride. He became the prince of peace rather than strife. And he did that in the place of his bride. But not only that, he was willing to take upon himself the punishment, the guilt, the just reward that his bride had earned because of her unrighteous anger. He died on the cross and felt the full and just wrath of the Father, the righteous anger, the holy indignation, the fullness of God's divine essence executes upon the slightest of evil. That punishment was not given to us, though we deserved it. It was taken upon him. And because he felt the full weight of God's anger, we can be forgiven of ours. Picking up on our theme from Numbers 20, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that Christ was the rock that was struck, thus nourishing and sustaining his people so that they could have strength to travel to the promised land of rest. Because Christ was struck on the cross, because he bore the wrath of God, we can be pardoned of our sinful rebellion and we can be sustained and nourished on our path to the eternal rest of God. That's good news for angry sinners like me and you. And do you believe that? Have you tasted of that salvation that flows from the rock from Jesus Christ that was struck in our place? All of our sinful anger, our impatience, our bitterness, our rage can be washed Washed in the fountain because he was the one that was struck in our place and he was the one that was never sinfully angry. All we have to do is look to him by faith and believe that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Turn away from our sinful anger and believe in him. I hope that you will heed that call. And it's only in light of this good news It's only after we've looked to him in faith and believe that we can begin to start to crucify the sin of anger in our hearts. If we don't start at the root, which is faith in Jesus Christ, we will never get the fruit of a peaceable life. Once we've come to faith, we have to be humble enough to recognize the sinful patterns in our life and humble enough to see that we really do have a problem with anger, with bitterness, with irritability, with wrath and rage and jealousy and resentment and any other species of murder that is in our hearts. And we have to strive and strain, the same language Sean talked about this morning, strive to kill it. Indeed, we can be angry at it. (laughs) We can be angry at our own sin. Paul uses the language in Ephesians 4 of taking off. Hebrews says, lay it aside. We have to figure out what idols are still erected in our hearts and topple them by the power of the Holy Spirit. The idol might be our comfort, 
or the praise of others, or our reputation, or our preferences, or our time, or whatever. Whatever I, idol, whatever I idolize in my heart, when that gets threatened or taken away, and I get angry, that's a big red flag saying, I still have some heart work to do right there. I need to work on that. I need to figure out what's behind that, what's under that. Reflect on the state of your heart. Ask yourself, why am I getting angry? Don't blame it on the circumstances. What is it that I'm craving in that moment and I'm not getting it? And if the motive is sinfully is sinful, then we have to prayerfully put it off. We have to take those thoughts captive, those desires, and crucify them. Ask the Lord, cry out to Him for help. And when your heart is made full by the forgiving power of the gospel, by soaking in God's word, then we can strive to put on holiness in the strength of the Holy Spirit. We can put on a peaceful spirit, a spirit that defers to others, a spirit of charity and love, a spirit of self-control that's slow to anger, just as God has revealed himself to be. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love is not easily angered. It's not irritable. And that's what we have to strive for in the strength of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to the book of James in the New Testament. James chapter 3. We'll see a little bit more about our hearts. This book says a lot about anger and about the tongue. James tells us early in the book, if any of us lacks wisdom, we should ask God for it. And God will give generously without reproach to any that would ask by faith. And I used to think that 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 verse is talking about decision making. Like, God, I don't know where to go to college. I need wisdom, so I'm going to pray for you about it so that I can have this wisdom to make a decision. And while wisdom is certainly helpful for decision making, James talks about wisdom in terms of Christian character. So look at James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise among you? Who has understanding? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But what is, what is wisdom? Next verse, verse 17. Wisdom can make decisions about hard things. Or wisdom can know who to marry. Wisdom can know where, what job to take. No, he talks about wisdom in terms of character. Wisdom that comes from above is pure and peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Wisdom, James tells us, Wisdom from above, godly wisdom, is peaceable, not fiery. It's gentle, not wrathful. 
It's open to reason, he says. To be wise, to have God's wisdom, means that you don't have a short fuse. It means that you are not quick-tempered, not irritable, not blinded by rage. It means you're peaceable and calm under pressure. You're cool-headed. You diffuse situations rather than inflaming them unnecessarily. That's what it means to be wise. And that's what we're called to do. And that's what we can do by the power of the Holy Spirit. James tells us all it takes is for us to ask God. And he delights in giving wisdom. He's already promised to us that God will give it generously, lavishly, without reproach. He's not the kind of God that says, you asked for wisdom 10 minutes ago and you've already done something foolish. No, I'm not gonna give you any more. You don't deserve it. That's not what God says. You come to him again and again and again. You say, God, I was foolish. I need more wisdom. And he delights in giving that wisdom to his children. He gives without reproach as our loving father loves to dole out good gifts to his children. And he does that not because we're so great, not because we're so peaceable, not because we're so innately wise, but because Christ was perfectly wise in our place. We can come to the Father again and again and be encouraged in our asking for wisdom because he delights in seeing his children have these good gifts. Wisdom has to do with character, to be peaceable and gentle and wise. In the remainder of our time tonight, I want to make a few concluding thoughts and applications about anger. A few concluding thoughts. First is, Proverbs makes clear that we need to be very careful about befriending someone who is habitually angry. We have to be very careful about being friends with someone that is always angry. And this is especially important for our young ones to hear. Proverbs 22 24 through 25 tells us to avoid angry people lest we learn their ways. It says, do not associate with a man given to anger or with a hot-tempered man lest you learn his ways and find yourself in a snare. Anger is contagious. Anger is a contagious vice and the effects of this vice cause shockwaves around the angry person. It may be that you're not even guilty of anger like your angry friend is, but you might be affected by the fruit of your friend's anger. An angry person is always starting fights, and if you're best friends with that angry person, you're going to get in fights. Don't associate with a man given to anger, lest you be ensnared. Similarly, especially our young ones again, don't marry someone that cannot control their anger. Don't even start dating them if they're habitually angry. This is a warning from Proverbs. This is not a law. I'm not trying to add a new law. But it's not going to get better just because you get married. It's only going to get worse. If they blow up at others, it will eventually be a blow up at you. Don't be naive to think, oh, they would never do that to me. They love me too much, or I can change them. They'll get better when we get married. That's foolish. It's only a matter of time. A wise person will be very leery of, a post, of associating with an angry person as a friend or as anything else. Second point of application. 
It's a question I'm gonna pose and then think through some answers. What do I do if I feel my anger is justified? What do I do if I feel my anger is justified? Paul says in Ephesians 4, be angry and do not sin, which assumes the possibility of having a righteous anger. Jesus cleansed the temple, right, of the money changers. We're not given a whole lot of details about how he spoke in the text, but I doubt he came in, all right, guys, time to gently flip this table over and I'm gonna crack this whip, be careful. No, I imagine he had some righteous indignation in that moment and was not sinful. So what do we do when we think we're in that position, when we're angry and we think we're right, we think we're justified in our anger? Well, a few thoughts expanding on something that Christopher Ashe once preached, he's a British pastor. First is be suspicious of your anger. Our default position is to be suspicious of our anger. We have sinful hearts that will have remaining sin until we die. And we need to know that our motives are rarely, if ever, pure in this life. There are often selfish, sinful intentions hiding away behind an otherwise noble emotion. Right? We can be convinced that we are standing for God's truth and we're righteously angry at people that are mocking God's truth, but what can be mixed in there is a sinful desire for contention. I like the battle. I like the wrestling. We think we can be trying to help another person see their sin, right? I'm going to confront them. I'm going to rebuke them. In, try and do that in love. When in reality, we've got a little bit of anger that they would dare sin against us in that way. How dare they? Against me. If we think our anger is justified, we have to be careful with it, prayerfully analyze it, reflect upon the light of God's word. And second, if you think your anger is justified, we also need to leave room for God. Leave room for God. Scripture makes clear to us that vengeance and revenge are not ours to take. You perhaps might be the person that God intends to address some injustice, some error of someone else. But it could be that God will address it in his way and in his timing and through someone else. I'm especially speaking to the personalities out there that feel like it is their divine calling to be the one to confront, correct, and rebuke sin in the church. That kind of personality can be tempted to never leave room for God and think it is their calling to be the one to call out sin. Third, <clears throat> if I feel my anger is justified, I need to meditate on the gospel. I need to meditate on Jesus Christ's work in the place of sinners. I need to saturate myself with the truth of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. I need to really press that truth of God's grace down into my soul and 
be deeply affected by his initiative taking and offense overlooking love. And when we do that, when I've stewed in the gospel, I'll see that I'll begin to be much slower to confront and much quicker to overlook an offense. You might have a real and justified anger against someone that has sinned against you, and you might be completely justified in confronting that brother and sister in love. But Proverbs also says that it is to a man's glory to overlook an offense. You may be justified in confronting some injustice, some sin, but you also have the grace in Christ to overlook it. Wisdom will help us discern what's the best route. It may be that after calming our heart through meditating on Jesus Christ's work, we'll find ourselves able to overlook and forgive. Meditate on the gospel. Fourth, after you've analyzed your motives and left room for God and meditated on the gospel, then you may speak when capable of doing so in love and in self-control. You may speak when capable of doing so with love and with self-control. Biblically justified anger, that is, anger that is not sinful, is expressed within the bounds of, safe, of, of self-control and of love. If you cannot confront in love and remain sober-minded and self-controlled in the process, then however justified your anger is, you will be sinful in expressing it. If we cannot control ourselves in speaking, then it perhaps is best to remain silent or else let someone else speak in our place. As we close tonight, we have one more illustration of anger to think about. This illustration contains a violent picture of what holy and just anger looks like when poured out against sin. But it also contains a picture of what pacified anger can bring. The table of the Lord's Supper is a picture of what justified anger towards sin entails. God's holy wrath against the sins of his people deserved a terrible and bloody death. And that's what Jesus gives to his people. And that's what is pictured at the table. But at the fruit we also see, or at the table we also see the fruit of what a peaceable man can bring. Jesus has reconciled formerly estranged parties. He has brought us back to God, and he's done so not merely in a cold, formal mediation kind of way. He's done it by bringing us into God's own household and making us his brothers and sisters. He's brought us to dine at the table of the king who was once white hot in anger and wrath towards us justly, but now is full of love for us. This table is only for those that have joined Christ by faith, who have turned from their sins and are obeying him, who have followed him in obedience to baptism. And if that's you, if you're marked by the fruit of repentance and discipleship, we see in Acts 2, devotion to the apostolic teaching of God's word and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayers, and we invite you to come. But if that is not you, then I warn you, you are still under God's wrath. I urge you to come to faith in Jesus Christ, forsaking your sins and joining yourself to God and to his church. 
And then you may join at the table and partake of Christ's meal of peace and fellowship. Let's pray. Holy Father.